I know justice takes time. I hope that will will happen. But I maybe you sensed my my stress. It's it's way easier to talk about what, what happened, how that was documented. But when it comes to how the international community failed Syrian and disappointed Syrians, uh, it's just hard to understand how this could happen uh, in, in in the modern world. On the 24th of October 2017, the Russian Federation exercised its veto in the UN Security Council to block the renewal of the Joint Investigative Mechanism. With its mandate expired, the gym ceased its work a few weeks later. Draft resolution has not been adopted owing to the negative vote of a permanent member of the Council. It seems this was the moment that investigations into who carried out chemical attacks in Syria ended. Russia will not agree to any mechanism that might shine a spotlight on the use of chemical weapons by its ally, the Syrian regime. It's as simple and shameful as that. The mechanism had become a nuisance to the Russian government. By now, the Russian army was fighting alongside Assad's forces across Syria. Russian planes were dropping missiles and bombs on opposition-held areas. Russian military police had set up checkpoints throughout the country. In the early stages of the conflict, Russia had still mostly focused on insulating the Syrian government from the worst consequences of its own actions. But now that Russian forces were actively fighting on the ground, its own reputation was at stake. And as it blocked the gym from further investigations, Russia also continued to churn out propaganda, especially about the Assad regime's use of chemical weapons. Today, if you go on YouTube or any other social media platform and look up Syrian chemical weapons attacks, you will find yourself bombarded by the most vile conspiracy theories. Some of these claim the attacks were entirely fake, that they were elaborate feats of acting and camera work done in Qatar or Virginia. Others claim that they were so-called false flag operations, attacks by rebel forces designed to provoke Western intervention in the war. Some of these theories even go so far as to paint local first responders, like the White Helmets, as bloodthirsty jihadists and international investigators from the OPCW as CIA puppets. There really is no bottom to this barrel. Certainly, as we saw in Iraq, the press and international institutions can fail. But in this podcast, you have also heard firsthand from journalists like Laurent van der Stockt and Karim Shaheen who risked their lives to document and gather evidence of chemical weapons use. You have also heard from Angela Kane and Stefan Mogul, who led forensic investigations into chemical attacks in Syria. You have heard from Pat Terrell and Rebecca Hersman, who worked to dismantle the regime's chemical stockpile and saw up close the scale of Assad's toxic arsenal. And you have also heard from Syrian survivors, activists, doctors and first responders who lived through these chemical strikes and struggled in extraordinary circumstances to save themselves and others, and finally to document this terrible truth. Mazen Dawish, Firas Bita, Hussam Nahas, Rawa, Tohama Dawish, Umm Mahmoud, 
Abdul Qadir al-Bakri, Dr. Hazim Najim, and the late Dr. Hassan al-Araj. Today, it has come down to these individual Syrians and thousands of others to lead the long, slow struggle for due process and accountability. In the end, UN mechanisms, international investigations, top-tier diplomacy, powerful appeals to public opinion, and even an unprecedented disarmament deal have certainly made some difference on the ground in Syria, but they have not brought any perpetrators of chemical weapons crimes to justice. For those Syrians who endured and survived Assad's atrocities, the efforts of determined lawyers, witnesses, investigators and advocates are the last hope. My name is Tobias Schneider, and this is Nowhere to Hide, a podcast from the Global Public Policy Institute in Berlin. For many Syrian human rights defenders, the fight to hold the Assad regime to account for its crimes had begun long before the revolution. So when in the spring of 2011, protesters were first met with bullets, these activists were ready to document the shootings, record massacres, identify victims, and coordinate with defectors from inside the ranks of the regime. For every day of the war, they kept careful records of events and detailed ledgers of friends injured, killed, and disappeared. They worked tirelessly to collect evidence and smuggle witnesses to safety. As the war worsened, they became even more determined and adept in their work. They built special collection capabilities, like the so-called watchtowers, who would listen in to Syrian Air Force radio chatter. Soon, these watchtowers would be able to identify pilots and jets as they departed from Syrian air bases and warn hospitals and civilian communities in their path. It is due to the effort of these and many other activists that the Syrian war became the best documented conflict in history. Their work was supported and received by an international network of researchers, investigators, and analysts. One of these bodies is the International Impartial and Independent Mechanism, or IIIM, headquartered in Geneva. Their professional investigators have collected and continue to collect millions of pieces of evidence for ongoing and future war crimes prosecutions. In other parts of Europe and North America, Syrian and international activists have built vast digital archives of open source information, as well as secret physical storage facilities housing millions of original documents from inside the Assad regime. Some of these documents have been smuggled out of Syria by a continuous trickle of regime defectors. Many of these have now formed their own networks to collect and organize testimony against Assad. We draw on this incredible wealth of information in our own reports. If you check out our research at chemicalweapons.gppi.net, you can see how we combine evidence from all of these sources 
to paint a comprehensive picture of chemical weapons attacks in Syria. By layering all of these different kinds of information, we can identify and even track the individuals and military units responsible for chemical weapons attacks across Syria. And importantly, much of that information is accessible to governments and the public alike, making the apparent failure to punish these perpetrators even more exasperating. It is, it is depressing to see that all these chemical attacks happen. We are talking about more than 200 chemical attacks that took place, but yet very little were investigated and none was persecuted. It's, it's really depressing uh, to see that we have this huge amount of documentation. We have all these incidences in countries like Syria, but yet nothing, nothing happened. What did happen was a profound reappraisal of the values we claim to hold and the norms we claim to defend. For those of us working on Syria in the last decade, among all the horrific crimes committed, it was chemical weapons and the continued impunity for those responsible for their use that most dispelled the myth of the international community and set the most dangerous precedent. In my opinion, Assad is still in power because he used chemical weapons. That's Hamish, who worked with Hussam to investigate chlorine strikes across northern Syria. Had he not used them, I think he would have fallen in August 2013 and we would be in a different place. That's why I am so keen on supporting the Chemical Weapons Convention and supporting you know, anybody who is going to remove chemical weapons from the world. Like many, Hamish worries that after their return to the battlefield in Syria, chemical weapons are now here to stay. My advice is you just need to be prepared. I mean, I, I think we need to do everything to remove these weapons from the planet. But unfortunately, life's not as simple and straightforward as that. I think people are now realizing that, that these weapons are about the 100-year taboo of their non-use from the First World War has sort of disappeared on the streets of Aleppo and Damascus. And we're not going to probably get that genie back in the bottle anytime soon. Stefan Mogul the chemical weapons expert who investigated the Khan Sheikhoun attack is similarly worried about the demise of the chemical weapons taboo. I was always convinced that there is no use of chemical weapons anymore. Uh, military has moved on. But now, seeing the Syrian conflict, uh, chemical weapons, even the chlorine bombs, they just, yeah, they prove to be what they already were in the First World War, you know? A very efficient weapon to scare people, to terrorize uh, civilians, to hurt people in places where they try to hide from conventional munitions. It's a cheap weapon. You, you release a gas that is heavier than air that creeps down into the cellars where, where families and children hide and, uh, and you poison them there. And those who worked to defend this prohibition, that infamous red line, continue to grapple with the enormity of what happened in Syria. Rebecca Hurstman had worked tirelessly 
to disarm the Syrian regime of its chemical stockpile in the aftermath of the 21st of August 2013 attack on Eastern Ghouta. Even after leaving government, the experience, tough choices and moral consequences of that time have stayed with her. Then, last summer, eight years to the day after the Ghouta chemical attacks, Rebecca watched footage from Kabul as U.S. diplomats and soldiers raced to evacuate as many Afghans as possible from the country. And it all came flooding back. For me, it was an odd flashback to our moment like that, right? And feeling this sense of empathy for colleagues and others who were working on that tarmac, who were there re at the relocated embassy, the people in the State Department, and colleagues and friends who were still in the Pentagon who were working on the task force that day. And it was impossible for me not to imagine how devastated they feel. It's so easy to be angry. It's so easy to look at what people are going through. And you forget that real people are doing that work. And they're watching those people die and they are devastated, right? That is not what they think they're there to do. They want to be there to help save lives. But the lives, almost 2,000 of them, are lost. Tens of thousands more live with profound injuries and trauma. For Syrian advocates like human rights lawyer Mazen Dawish, the suffering is not only vast in scale, it is also painfully personal. A lot of my friend, my colleague, my colleague, Ayham Ghazoul, who's arrested with me from the office, he died under torture. Razan, Nazim, Yahya, Shirbaji, Nabil, a lot of my friends. So this is what I am. I'm a human rights defender. It's not a luxury. This is not something I read about it. This is something I see it in my eyes. So I feel there is double responsibility for my partner and friends and colleagues and also for my country. Unlike the ongoing violence of the war, the memory of Syria is not contained to its borders. And today, it is Syrians working across borders who have taken the fight for justice into their own hands. On the 5th of October, 2020, the Open Society Justice Initiative, based in London, together with the Syrian Archive, based in Berlin, and the Syrian Center for Media and Freedom of Expression, the organization led by Mazen, based in Paris, filed the first criminal complaint related to the use of chemical weapons in Syria with the office of the German federal prosecutor. The criminal complaint focuses on two attacks in particular. The 21st of August 2013 in Eastern Ghouta, which Angela investigated, as well as the 4th of April 2017 attack on Khan Sheikhoun the aftermath of which was witnessed by Karim Shaheen. Two further criminal complaints would follow in France and Sweden. France is home to thousands of Syrian refugees, and its investigating judges have a mandate to determine whether crimes against humanity were committed anywhere in the world. 
The case follows a similar one opened in Germany last year, and it's expected another case will be opened in Sweden in the coming months. They were filed under a legal doctrine called universal jurisdiction. This allows prosecution of serious mass crimes, like war crimes and genocide, in national courts, regardless of the nationality of the victim, the perpetrator, or the place of the crime. In practice, it means that certain countries open their legal systems for the prosecution of some of the most heinous mass crimes, regardless of where they were perpetrated. In Germany in particular, that doctrine is closely intertwined with the country's experience of dealing with its own past of surveillance, totalitarian dictatorship, and atrocities. For Mazen, this experience became visceral when, shortly after arriving in Berlin, he visited the former underground prison of the East German secret police, the Stasi. I still remember I go to Stasi prison in Berlin, and when I go to the underground cell there, I see my colleague and my friend. And first moment, I just run to the, to the cell. I want to open the door. And it's a few seconds directly, I recognize that illusion. Mazen and his colleagues began building a network of partner organizations based around Europe and Syria, who would help him build these historic cases under universal jurisdiction. We start thinking how we can use the universal jurisdiction with other partner. Uh, in SCM, we focus on three main lines, the torture, chemical weapons and uh, attack the civilian uh, places like schools, hospitals. This small but potent network of Syrian and European human rights lawyers and investigators then starts to pool resources and divide tasks among them according to expertise. Mazen and his team are responsible for organizing the victim's testimony. I believe that the most important, the victim themselves. They are the key. But also we recognize that really there is very huge and important work from many players. There is also a lot of work done from other organizations. We try to learn more, to understand more. Some of these cases very technical. With OSF Justice Initiative and the Syrian Archive, we work in two cases, Ghouta attack and Han Sheikhoun attack in 2017. The deeper they dig, the more evidence they uncover. There is a huge documentation, and they do really a great work and job in that time. So we, we find ourselves have a lot of resource, a lot of uh, documentation from inside. Hundreds of testimony, a lot of reports done from them, videos, photos. So we start building in what they did. We discover that there is samples from the weapons used in Khan Sheikhoun or on Al-Ghouta. There is samples from the clouds, from the soil. So 
the level of the of the evidence we have we don't think that it's exist but besides a plaintiff criminal cases also require defendants we recognize that we need uh, and there is a gap in building the chain of command and the structures so far even those international investigations that had the power to attribute responsibility for chemical weapons attacks like the gym had only ever identified the Syrian army as a whole as responsible but you can't bring an entire military institution to court you need to identify what is called command responsibility and for that you need to understand who is giving orders to whom the chain of command within the Syrian military and security branches so we start also communicate with defecto from the science center from fourth division from republican guard units and we start build the chain of commands we try also as i said we communicate with many defecto we try to collect more information about also the chain of supply and how these weapons create especially the sarin which we know that it's not an easy things to make it or to mix it or to to preserve it so we start collect this data put all these element together also the level of cooperation with the defecto we find that huge information coming to us so we can create the structure of this military unit airports uh, pilots huge information finally once the case file has been prepared they start to approach prosecutors in different jurisdictions to proceed with the case after we find ourselves that we build the file so we try to see the jurisdiction and where we can send this complaint at the time of recording The criminal complaints regarding chemical weapons attacks are still making their way through the German, French and Swedish prosecutorial offices. It can take years for prosecutors to turn an initial criminal complaint into a viable case. Especially since in cases like those involving chemical weapons, the most important perpetrators remain out of reach. The wheels of justice turn slowly, but eventually Sometimes they do arrive somewhere. In April 2020, the High Regional Court in Koblenz, a small city on the banks of the Rhine in Germany, opened a criminal trial against the former Syrian intelligence officers Anwar Aslan and Iyad Al-Qarib for their role in Branch 251, one of Syria's worst torture dungeons. Both former officials had defected from the regime and arrived in Germany to live as refugees. Anwar Aslan, former head of the investigation department, was accused of the torture of at least 4,000 people, 58 counts of murder, and multiple cases of rape and sexual assault. Iyad Al-Kharib was accused of aiding and abetting these crimes by detaining revolutionary protesters and delivering them to branch 251. It was the first time ever Syrian regime officials had to stand trial for the atrocities committed in Syria. In a case 
brought under the doctrine of universal jurisdiction. It was more than justice. It was proof of concept. The first day of the trial of Koblenz, I stand next to the building and I said to my colleagues, I hope it's in Damascus. I hope this is done in Syria. So for me, I still believe that the best way to solve all what happened in Syria, to have a transition period, and we succeed to build transitional justice form, fit our need in Syria, not copy from other country, uh, recognize the Syrian sensitivity, the Syrian needs. But this is seem it will take long time. This is not our first choice, or maybe second or even third, but this is the alternative choices, because until now, without a political transition, we can't speak reality in transitional justice. And also, as we know uh, that uh, the road to ICC, it's totally closed. So this is our, again, alternative choices, just not to allow for the Lord of the War, for the Syrian government and their supporter to move to political agreement, uh, build in sharing interest, and totally ignore the victim rights and the accountability. Our colleague Karam Shemali, together with lawyer Fritz Streif, followed the Koblenz trial closely in his earlier podcast called Branch 251. The podcast includes commentary, analysis, and testimony from the courtroom, especially from victims and their families. For some Syrians, even those who want to believe in justice, the long path for universal jurisdiction is simply not worth the repeat traumatization. Rather than go through the grueling process of preparing testimony for a trial, they focus on moving on, on building new lives, oftentimes in new, strange countries. It's not easy also for a lot of people, the Syrian who, some of them, they just want to forget all what they face in Syria and want to build new life. Not easy for those who still have trauma from the regime, even if they are here in Europe. Those who have families inside Syria. And I think the most dangerous we face with the victim that those who don't have hope, they lose their faith in, in justice and accountability and thinking everything and anything will done, it's hopeless. But still, there is a lot who's decided to go forward. And I think it's not easy for any of those victims. There is many challenge, not only about their safety, but to tell your story again and again and time after time. They put their trust and to go forward in this heavy and long-term jurisdiction. Yes, we need experts, we need um, evidence, we need lawyers, we need organization work, but the most important, I think, the victim themselves. One of the Syrians who has chosen the long road to justice is Youssef. 
I am one of the witnesses in a case filed or in the process of filing a case in Sweden and in a number of countries. But as I am a resident in Sweden, I am a witness in this filed case in Sweden against the Assad regime for its use of chemical weapons in attacking Eastern Huta in 2013. This is a duty. Of course it is hard. In two ways it's hard. It's hard because it's a long process and has long procedures and we know this could take years and days. And the other thing, it could cause some dangers on the person or on their family. If the regime wanted to harm the person or pressure them, it could affect them or their family. We hope that we hold them accountable and nothing happens to us. First of all, this decision is the last thing we can do against the Assad regime. Right now, since we have no kind of pressure on the Assad regime to change it or for holding it accountable or to take the rights of the people who have died, the only solution is to resort to international judiciary, to reaffirm the rights of the people who he killed and who he displaced and the people who he pushed out. This is the last option or the only option that is currently possible to hold al-Assad accountable. Tohama, the nurse from Eastern Ghouta, who had treated hundreds of victims following the same attack that Youssef had witnessed, is another survivor who places high hopes and great responsibility in the justice system. Today, she lives in France with her husband and daughter. If I was asked to testify one of these days to give my testimony of this massacre, I wouldn't hesitate for a moment. But I am an individual. The situation needs institutions and organizations to take care of these things. My hope is that the perpetrators get prosecuted, even if after a while. That every perpetrator and every criminal receives their punishment, even though the process is very long through the courts and it might take many years, possibly tens of years, till justice is served against those people who committed these crimes. It wouldn't be right for those people to remain free. In the end, these are criminals. From Bashar al-Assad to the person with the smallest role who committed any wrong in the rights of any civilian. For us, the people who still believe in our revolution and peacefulness, our rights have been violated by this criminal thug and his father before him. We have suffered from a great deal of injustice from them throughout the years. And when we took the decision to come out with the Syrian revolution, we were faced with the highest degree of violence and repression. So we are in need of achieving justice against these people. More than a decade after the first protesters made their way through the streets of Damascus and Dara, and after the regime responded with imprisonment, torture, bullets, bombardment, and finally nerve agents and poison gas. There is determination, and there is a glimmer of hope. Earlier this year, on the 13th of January, 2022, the court in Koblenz returned its judgment 
und former Head of Investigation at Branch 251, Anwar Raslan. Guilty. A German court has sentenced a former Syrian military officer to life in prison for crimes against humanity. It's the world's first trial concerning state torture in Syria. I can say uh, I feel relieved, although I had to relive the uh, horrible experience uh, again and again, but uh, at least uh, now in a meaningful way. I am, I am so happy. I am so happy because today it's victory, victory for justice as principle. It's victory for victims here who can, can come and for the victims who couldn't came here. His lower-ranking accomplice, Iyad Al-Qarib, was sentenced last year to four years and six months in prison. But not all Syrians felt optimistic after the verdict. Like Hussam, who time and again had anticipated the regime's next cruelty, who had spent so long trying to prepare Syrian doctors and communities for chemical weapon strikes, who spotted the gap in the disarmament deal, and who, in 2014, drove across Idlib and Hama province to gather evidence of chlorine use. Personally speaking, I don't think that I feel fully satisfied uh, that they were brought to justice. Again, this is a first step, but this should not be the, the end of the work around this, this issue. I don't think this is enough. We are still only witnessing cases against individuals on a very, very low level in uh, the hierarchy of the, the, the Syrian government. And I still personally believe that those who, who instructed, who planned these violations are, are still far from, from being persecuted. But my hope is that these at least will be the first very, very small steps for future reconciliation in Syria and very small steps for, for, for future peace. Right now, almost the only mechanism that is persecuting crimes inside Syria is the universal destruction. Uh, and this is, again, uh, only for, for individuals who are present in countries that, that are utilizing this mechanism. So I, I don't think this is, this is going to be efficient to bring everyone who was involved in these crimes to, to justice. I'm using this feeling on a, on a personal level to work harder towards uh, documenting these human rights violations, speaking out about what, what I witnessed on a personal level, speaking out about my, my previous experiences in, in Syria and using science, using rigorous documentation to continue to bring these, these human rights violations that were committed inside Syria to the international community to make it clear that as long as we don't see justice and accountability in, in Syria, there is no way for for the Syrian conflict to be resolved. Having taken his case against the Assad regime to court, Youssef saw the judicial process as an essential, but he held a sensible view of what he hoped it could accomplish and what kind of reckoning this war criminal would ever face. <laughs> Truthfully, the most I hope for 
is that he is brought to court. That he is transferred to the court, takes his ruling and becomes an example. But the most I can expect is that this is just documentation for the future generations about what happened and who was responsible for this crime. A sort of confirmation of the facts so that there is no manipulation of it in the future. As you know, there's a lot of false rumors around this case and who conducted the chemical attack. One of the rumors is that the residents are the ones who bombed themselves with chemicals so that they distort the regime's reputation. Taking the case forward is proof of the truth and its documentation. I don't think it will be more than this. I don't think in the current circumstances the regime will go to court. I hope for it, but I don't think it is going to happen. Frankly, I am disappointed, so very disappointed. Especially if there was someone who was active in this revolution and active in the activities against this dictatorship. Any work you do, you'd hope it would bring an outcome. The person doing something, they're striving for an outcome. Unfortunately, the outcome of this revolution was a negative one. But we are hoping for the future generations. This generation wasn't able to fix things. But you know, every generation learns from their previous one. The next generation might learn from our experiences through the documentation and the records and the courts. They can learn from this experience and maybe they can accomplish better outcomes. To remove the injustice on the Syrian nation and on the rest of the nations. For Mazen, the long and arduous journey through the courts is also a path forward. It is about recognizing the horrors of recent history to shape a more hopeful future. One of reconciliation, reconstruction and a safe, democratic and peaceful Syria. So this is not for revenge, not to feeling satisfied as a victim. This is to say that sustainable peace needs justice need to recognize the victim rights. And to be honest, as one of the refugees, this is my way to go back to my country. I want to go back to my country. But if the same people who made these crimes have the same power and in the same position, how I can go back? We are here. We are not only a negative victim, suffering and crying. We are a survivor and we have duty for our children for our future we will work to build sustainable peace in Syria Thank you.
Thank you so much for listening to Nowhere to Hide. This podcast is the result of four years of effort by our team at GPPI. But more importantly, it builds on the extraordinary work and testimony of innumerable Syrians who have risked their lives to document crimes in Syria and who have entrusted us with their stories. We are grateful to all of them. If you'd like to learn more about chemical weapons use in Syria, do check out our website at chemicalweapons.gppi.net where you'll find research reports, witness testimony, and an interactive map and database. For a deeper dive into the trial in Koblenz, check out my colleague Karam Shumali and Fritz Streif's earlier podcast, Branch 251. For updates on other cases around Syrian war criminals, or to support the pursuit of justice in Syria, check out the Syrian Center for Justice and Accountability, the Open Society Justice Initiative, and the European Center for Constitutional and Human Rights, as well as Mazen's organization, the Syrian Center for Media and Freedom of Expression. For justice, protection, and empowerment initiatives focused on women in Syria, check out Women Now for Development. Nowhere to Hide was written and produced by Karam Shemali, Eliza Apperly, and Injil Bakri. Sound design and composition by Benjamin Nash. Podcast illustrations by Molly Krobavo. Cover image design by Sonia Sugrobova. Thank you to Marianne Smaha, David Taffet, Christopher Schütze, and Jeffrey Love for English language voiceovers. Special thanks to our communications team, Katarina Nachba, Amanda Pridmore, and Ilya Sperling, and to the Canadian Department of Foreign Affairs, who have supported the production of this podcast. <laughs>